Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program and thank you for joining us today. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Visit the Clorox Healthcare website, www.cloroxhealthcare.com, and learn more about keeping environments safer with Clorox Healthcare. At this time, I'd like to introduce our, de- our guest today, Dr. David Lyerly. Dr. Lyerly is the co founder and chief science officer of Tech Lab. And we will be discussing C. difficile infections and secondary bacterial pneumonia with Dr. Dr. Lyerly. And Dr. Lyerly, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Nancy. Thanks to the, uh, the C. diff Foundation as well. I really appreciate you allowing me to participate. Great to be here. It's great to have you here, and we're just so thrilled that you are. And would you mind taking a moment just to um, share your background and information with our global listeners? Okay. Um, I went to the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, got my Ph.D. at Wake Forest University in microbiology and immunology, and I was fortunate enough to get a postdoctoral position with Dr. Tracy Wilkins, one of the pioneers in anaerobic uh, microbiology at the anaerobe lab at Virginia Tech. And from there, I wanted to become a research scientist at Virginia Tech. And he and I started Tech Lab in 1989. So we've been going quite a while. The company's grown quite a bit. Our focus has always been on C. diff, and we've branched out over the past couple of decades to include other intestinal diseases. So, Nancy, I'll turn it back to you. Oh, Dr. Lyerly, thank you so much. And that's a really great background. And, um, you know, hats off to you and Dr. Wilkins for starting Tech Lab, which is so uh, informative and helpful in the healthcare uh, industry today. And Dr. Lyerly, um, okay, if you wouldn't mind starting out with some basics information on C. difficile infections, um, can you explain how common they are? and how, you know, the infections caused by C. difficile? Uh, Certainly. Um, As we begin today's discussion, I do want to mention that we'll be talking about three types of infections. We'll we'll cover intestinal infections caused by C. diff. We'll cover primary respiratory infections caused by viruses. And then, of course, we're going to kind of morph into secondary bacterial pneumonias that can follow viral infections. And then I also want to mention that the name Clostridium difficile has been changed to Clostridioides difficile. In this discussion, I'll refer uh, to it as C. diff. The disease that is caused by C. diff is most commonly referred to as C. diff infection, CDI, so I'll be using that term as well. Now, regarding this organism and the disease that it causes, C. diff was actually identified as an intestinal pathogen Uh, a little more than 40 years ago. It now causes hundreds of thousands of cases of diarrhea and colitis each year in the U.S., Europe. It's now recognized as a global pathogen. Many of these cases are occurring in long-term care facilities, but there also are a high number of community-acquired cases. Tens of thousands of people die each year from this infection. It's very serious. One of the challenges that is faced with CDI patients is the fact that about 25% of them will relapse. These relapses may occur only once. They may occur multiple times um, over and over. We've talked to physicians who have had CDI patients relapse 10 times. An uncomplicated non-relapsing case will run about several, maybe ten to $20,000 in hospital costs. Those are numbers probably from about a uh, about a year ago, relapses, of course, are going to drive up the health care costs. CDI, one more point I want to make. CDI is the most common hospital-acquired infection. It's jumped over MRSA, and that's uh, primarily because of the spores that this organism forms. These spores are really hardy, and CDI sped, uh, shed spores in very high numbers. So as a result, these spores get spread throughout our health care facilities. Nancy? Exactly, Dr. Lyerly, and there's um, a wealth of information that you've shared, and we appreciate that. And Dr. Lyerly, what is the primary factor in the onset of a CDI? 
Well, I want to start out with that question by mentioning the best way to actually prevent CDI, and it's a healthy intestinal flora. A healthy flora is really diverse, and this is what actually provides the protection. When the flora gets disturbed or altered in some manner, when the diversity of our gut flora decreases, we become much more susceptible to intestinal infections. And C. diff is actually at the top of the list for being able to take advantage of a depleted flora. So now let's talk about the, the primary manner in which our protective intestinal flora is disturbed. This is through the action of antibiotics, primarily antibiotics. When we take antibiotics, they are not selective enough to just kill that particular pathogen. Instead, that antibiotic will kill that pathogen, but it's also going to kill many of the other bacteria in our body, and that includes those in our gut flora, the ones that are so critical for protection. There are several major classes of antibiotics. They target nucleic acid processes, protein synthesis, cell wall synthesis, bacterial membranes, and so forth. They do this in a fairly broad manner. So the antibiotics that we take, for example, for a respiratory infection, they really do a number on our intestinal flora, and that's the key point in today's discussion. The antibiotics will kill the respiratory pathogens, but they also kill our intestinal flora. And when this happens, the numbers of bacteria, the diversity of the bacteria in our gut are decreased. When C. diff spores are present, they're able to get a foothold, germinate, and start to grow. This organism grows in the intestine, in the uh, large intestine. That's where the anaerobic environment is that allows it to grow. And when it does, it produces two really potent toxins that damage the gut mucosa. They're called A and B. But in addition to their ability to directly damage the mucosa, they are really good at triggering inflammation. Most cases of CDI will actually develop into colitis if they go unchecked. And that's when you're going to have a lot of inflammation present. And many CDI experts consider inflammation to be a hallmark of this disease. So it's the reduction in the numbers and diversity of our gut flora that allows C. diff spores to germinate, get sufficient nutrients to grow, and produce the toxins. This is when you get the disease. Nancy? Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lyerly. And, you know, it's really a complicated infection. And... We, we're really curious to find out, why is a C. difficile infection so difficult to diagnose? Well, I'll be talking about the diagnosis of CDI during the COVID and flu season in a little bit, but I do want to mention the challenges that you see with CDI diagnosis. I've already mentioned it's the most common hospital-acquired infection, and there are millions of tests for CDI done each year in the U.S. Patients who test positive often get placed in isolation if it's possible, but in today's world with pandemic, that makes it very challenging. And I've already mentioned the spores that it produces. But it, it's very difficult and challenging to diagnose because the presence of C. diff does not always equal disease. Less than 3% of general population are colonized with C. diff, but when you go into a hospital, your chances, your risk of becoming a carrier of this organism increase. It can be part of a mixed infection in which C. diff actually does not contribute to disease. Uh, so, for example, it could be part of a mixed infection with something like a norovirus or a campylobacter, be an innocent bystander and not be responsible for the diarrhea that's going on with the patient. Uh, I want to mention, too, the costs that are being associated with CDI. Uh, they are really climbing, and we're looking at now probably about $5 billion annually. These are more than what you see associated with MRSA. The hand-washing, isolation of patients, personal protective equipment, cleaning with spore-killing agents, all help reduce transmission. But during this pandemic, many of these re resources are limited. There are a number of tests that are available for CDI. Each has advantages and limitations. There are immunoassays for toxins A and B. They give a lower sensitivity but they provide a higher predictive positive value because you're picking up the analyte that actually is causing the disease. 
their immunoassays for glutamate dehydrogenase, known as GDH. These don't differentiate between toxigenic and non-toxigenic strains, but if it's negative, it does accurately rule out CDI. And then there are molecular or NAT uh, assays that pick up the toxin genes. Again, these are very sensitive tests, but because of that, they can overdiagnose, overcall a patient. Um, in many instances, some of the equipment that you use for CDI testing is what has been needed for uh, testing for COVID patients. But because of these advantages and limitations, different panels of experts have put together algorithm approaches that combine two or more of these tests. That gives you a better accuracy for true CDI. Nancy? Okay, Dr. Lyerly, thank you so much for all that information. And we're to about two minutes before we go to our first commercial break. And mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind um, just sharing with our listeners exactly what's available and how is the CDI being treated at this time? Yeah, the good thing about, if there is truly a good thing about CDI, is that it can be effectively treated, but it's very ironic because this disease that's triggered by antibiotics is actually treated by giving other different antibiotics. So you can incite the disease with an antibiotic, and you turn around and treat the patient with another antibiotic. It used to be that metronidazole was used quite a bit, but now vancomycin and fidaxomycin are used more often. There are good points about this. Most patients are going to respond to these antibiotics. The problem tends to be that patients will relapse after being treated. Uh, Fidaxomycin does seem to have a lower relapse rate, so that's a step in the right direction. But there are also many articles out there on fecal transplants, and these do work very nicely. There's some information out recently that continues to show the safety of it, but there are experts that will say, you know, go with the antibiotics. If that doesn't work, if the patient continues to relapse, then go ahead and and consider a fecal transplant. So at that point, Nancy, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyerly. We appreciate that. And Dr. Lyerly, right now we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing the C. difficile infections and secondary secondary bacterial pneumonia with Dr. David Lyerly. So please stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Join us on Saturday, November 14th at 8 a.m. Eastern Time for the 8th Annual International C. diff Virtual Conference and Health Expo. For details and to register, please visit cdiff2020.com. Again, that's cdiff2020.com. Or contact the C. diff Foundation at 727-205-3922. We look forward to meeting you online on November 14th and meeting you in person in November 2021 in Boston, Massachusetts at the Hilton Boston Logan Airport Hotel. Do you know the symptoms of COVID-19? They may appear 2 to 14 days after exposure to the virus. Symptoms may include fever, chills, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, new loss of taste or smell, vomiting or diarrhea. This can be in any combination. Any difficulty in breathing or shortness of breath, please visit your local hospital immediately. For additional up-to-date COVID-19 information, please visit the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website at cdc.gov. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are here with Dr. David Lyerly, 
uh, discussing C. difficile infections and secondary, secondary bacterial pneumonia. And at this time, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lyerly back to the program. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Lyerly. Thanks, Nancy. Great to be here. Well, thank you so much. And you're sharing a wealth of information, and I know our global listeners really appreciate it, too. And, you know, not to um, change, we're going to change gears a little bit. Now you're going to discuss uh, the the uh, bac- secondary bacterial pneumonia. And, Dr. Lyerly, how does secondary bacterial pneumonia develop from a viral respiratory infection? Well, like you said, Nancy, we're going to move now from the intestine to the lungs. And we'll be talking about respiratory infections. When you develop a a viral respiratory infection, the airways in our lungs become inflamed. There are uh, multiple inflammatory pathways that can be triggered. And, for example, this is the basis for the cytokine storm you've you've been hearing about with COVID patients who develop the severe stage of the disease. But it's this inflammation that slows down the ability of our body to clear mucus and secretions. When this happens, you begin to get a buildup of bacteria in the lungs. Normally, this would not happen in a healthy individual. In a healthy person, you'd be able to clear the secretions and the mucus. But in addition to the inflammation, our immune system is actually weakened by this type of viral infection. And this further inhibits our ability to clear the virus or the buildup of bacteria in the mucus. When this happens... You get a primary infection caused by, for example, flu virus that can uh, develop into a, a bacterial pneumonia. You can actually have both types of infection going on at the same time, or you may have bacterial pneumonia becoming the key infection. The bacterial pneumonia that develops involves infection by bacteria such as Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, Haemophilus, Pseudomonas. Those are the more common ones, but... Those infections are accompanied by the host inflammation. This type of secondary infection occurs in billions of people worldwide each year. Fortunately, this is a very good point, patients who develop bacterial pneumonia can be effectively treated with antibiotics. And in most instances, the bacterial pneumonias we're talking about do respond to antibiotic therapy, but I do want to mention they can be very difficult to treat. Uh, there are other bacterial causes, but the ones that I mentioned, uh, strep, staph, haemophilus, pseudomonas, those are the more common ones. There is the question, too, of how a viral infection may help a bacterial infection become established. Uh, this is being looked at, continues to be looked at, but there are some thoughts that the damage done by the virus actually reveals more sites to which the bacterium can adhere to. Of course, there's the the swelling of airways, the inhibition of clearance, and impairment of the immune response. There's going to be cell and tissue destruction. All of these factors allow bacteria to spread in the lungs, and in many cases, it becomes invasive. Secondary bacterial pneumonias can develop into bacteremias. So we know that viral respiratory infections predispose patients to secondary bacterial pneumonia. Let's take just a brief look at two different flu pandemics to see the association of flu with bacterial pneumonia. In the 1918 flu uh, pandemic that we've been hearing some about because of the current pandemic, it was caused by an H1N1 strain. Many persons died from the virus, but there were a significant number of deaths due to secondary bacterial infections. In that case, they were seeing, I think, more streptococcal infections. In the flu pandemic from 2009, that was also caused by an H1N1, many persons, primarily outside the U.S., also died from secondary bacterial pneumonias. Many were caused, again, by strep, but some were caused by staphylococcus. Nancy? Thank you, Dr. Lyerly. And Dr. Lyerly, so how often is flu associated with secondary bacterial pneumonia? Well, there have been a, a number of studies that have looked at secondary bacterial pneumonias that are associated with flu. And we'll go back to the two pandemics I mentioned earlier. There was a study published in 2008, right before the 2009 H1N1 uh, flu epidemic, in which scientists actually went back to data from 1918. They pulled samples and they looked more closely at the cause of death. 
When they did their analysis, some of those results were very startling. The estimates, are, to me, are really uh, very startling. Of the 100 million or so persons who died during that particular flu pandemic, the majority probably died from secondary bacterial infection. majority did. Some work has been, has been done to look at more detail at the victims from 2009, from that H1N1 flu epidemic. And in that case, it was very uh, startling, too. It looks like outside the U.S., possibly 50% or more died from secondary bacterial infection. So these numbers do show how critically involved secondary bacterial pneumonias are when we're talking about viral pneumonias. Nancy? Yes, absolutely, Dr. Larley. And, um, Doctor, do we know if COVID-19 infections are associated with secondary bacterial pneumonia? Well, in the current COVID pandemic, there are reports that a significant number of patients are dying from secondary bacterial and fungal infections. And the estimates uh, for those who develop for the numbers for bacterial pneumonias are bouncing around some. Early on, Several months ago, the data was pointing towards a, a number that looked like 50%, but more recent estimates are bringing these numbers down quite a bit. So I do want to stress the numbers that we're seeing still are rough estimates, and I want to caution that we need much more data collected so we can better understand the association of COVID infections with bacterial pneumonia. Early on, Many COVID patients received antibiotics because, simply put, physicians did not have many choices in how to treat these patients. And as an example, in the study out of India, uh, back in the late spring, more than 70% of COVID patients were receiving antibiotics. But this way of thinking is changing. Some of the more recent data indicates that in many instances, COVID patients don't need antibiotics and patients are not advancing as much as uh, was first thought. Even so, many patients, many COVID patients, still are treated empirically. So we really need more tests that can help identify and distinguish a primary viral infection from a secondary bacterial infection. This would uh, help us to determine much more accurately how to treat those patients and whether antibiotics are needed. I know there are many people working on this around the country. They're looking at different types of host biomarkers, for example. Those kinds of tests will help save lives, and they will certainly help support antibiotic stewardship. So I want to emphasize it's still too early to know the numbers in the current COVID pandemic, but there are studies published that do show that COVID patients can develop secondary bacterial pneumonia. Many of these secondary pneumonias have resulted in death. We can say that COVID that the COVID pandemic has driven up the use of antibiotics. And a lot of uh, that data is coming out of studies where COVID patients were treated empirically because there simply wasn't a clear direction for treatment. So if we, as we've learned more about how to treat this disease, uh, hopefully we're making better progress in who needs antibiotics and who don't. Uh, I think some of the more recent data is actually suggesting that antibiotics are not needed in many cases of COVID, and I'll mention a little more about that in a little bit. Uh, There was a study in Michigan that involved 38 hospitals, and more than half the patients in those hospitals with suspected COVID infection received antibiotics. Now, this was back during the peak months. And so in those studies, there was a host protein called procalcitonin, that was used to help distinguish a bacterial pneumonia from the initial COVID infection. And I think the data is, is pretty good for that. It's encouraging uh, because procalcitonin will uh, go up if you have a bacterial pneumonia, but it's not totally specific. But uh, if you look on the market, you can see procalcitonin being used for that purpose now. One of the points that the authors did point out is that they were making a strong effort to reduce unnecessary antibiotics, and they were referring to them basically as what are called just-in-case antibiotics, and they pointed out the importance of minimizing their overuse because you want to avoid C. diff infections. So there are more and more experts that are emphasizing the importance and the concerns about C. diff disease arising in patients who are being treated empirically. And as we move into flu season, 
And with the additional challenge of COVID infections, we will see an increase in the use of antibiotics. I don't, I don't really think this is any surprise. Uh, the predictions are pretty pessimistic for obvious reasons for this flu season. We're going to have a combination of viral infections, flu, COVID, respiratory syncytial. And I think there uh, probably will be an increase in antibiotic usage. Uh, that's just a realistic concern. But I've also seen some reports that are a little more optimistic. Some uh, experts are saying that with people being much more cautious uh, because of COVID, hopefully that same trend is going to hold up with the flu vaccine. And if we can get more people vaccinated, of course, that's going to help too. These are all precautions that we can help with not only COVID, but also lower the flu, uh, flu rates. Uh, one more thing I'll mention quickly. In Australia, which is finishing up their flu season, the rates of flu have been way, way down. So that's very encouraging. So this does suggest that the things we're doing to prevent COVID infections are going to work for a flu as well. Nancy? Thanks, Dr. Dr. Lyerly. That's really great information. Love the end part where the flu rate is going down or less numbers over in Australia. Hopefully we'll see the same thing here this fall. So, but at this time, we're going to pause for another commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing C. difficile infection and secondary bacterial pneumonia with our guest, Dr. David Lyerly. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. If you miss the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Handwashing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Handwashing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on handwashing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety. Get answers to your questions. You're not alone. Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 919-201-1512 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program and thank you so much for joining us today on C. diff spores and more. We're here with our special guest, Dr. David Lyerly, and doctor has been discussing the C. difficile infections and secondary bacterial pneumonia. At this time, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lyerly back to the program. Hello, Dr. Lyerly, and thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Nancy. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. You have definitely shared an awful lot of information with our global listeners, and we really appreciate your time and for doing this. And, you know, there's so much to say about C. difficile infections and secondary bacterial pneumonia. And moving on to the, the, you know, another uh, large information uh, about the pneumonia, um, can you tell us about how in the association of C. diff infections, 
with secondary bacterial pneumonia, can you provide some background on how CDI and respiratory infections, in particularly um, secondary bacterial pneumonia, are associated? Uh, certainly. Um, the primary link between the onset of CDI and secondary bacterial pneumonia is the use of antibiotics. And this antibiotic, I want to... Uh, Make sure this is clear. This antibiotic link exists not only with bacterial pneumonias, but it also exists in patients who have primary viral respiratory infections and who are receiving antibiotics empirically. Uh, during winter months, the use of antibiotics goes up. And that's simply because of uh, the increase in respiratory infections. Flu and other respiratory viruses are more prevalent. And this is understandable, but it's these antibiotics those being used for respiratory infections that are very potent. They kill off much of our intestinal flora. This is the primary contributing factor to the onset of CDI. I will mention, too, that there are other things that can mess up our intestinal flora, but antibiotics do an exceptionally good uh, job of doing this. And remember, too, as I mentioned earlier, that spores are spread through many healthcare facilities. Uh, these are very difficult to kill spores, and you have CDI patients who have diarrhea, so you can imagine the millions of spores that are being shed in healthcare facilities each day from a CDI patient. So back to the issue of antibiotics being used for respiratory infections, a healthy gut flora is our primary defense against CDI, and as a result of this antibiotic treatment that's used so often, this very good protective mechanism has been uh, compromised dramatically. This compromise can occur any time when antibiotics are administered, and elderly patients are especially vulnerable because they're going to have their gut flora uh, wiped out. They also already have weakened immune systems, and they often have other comorbidities. So to sum it up, antibiotics are the key link between CDI and respiratory infections. Nancy? Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. Larley. And, you know, we really want to know is what happens to the incidence of CDI during the flu season? Yeah, let's, let's take a look at CDI rates during flu. And we can use this as a model, respiratory infections and uh, the increased use of antibiotics. There are not a huge number of publications on this topic looking at CDI during flu, but there are enough data that I think we can make some generalizations. The epidemiology of CDI, or probably what I should say, the positivity rate for CDI, actually follows seasonally along with influenza cause of antibiotics being used. Wintertime is flu season, so it makes sense that the incidence of CDI is higher during the winter, mainly during the latter part of the winter into early spring. So when you have your peak flu season, if you look uh, probably four to eight weeks following that, that's when you'll see your, your increase uh, in the incidence of CDI. And of course, this increased use of antibiotics is an effort to treat secondary bacterial pneumonias. Uh, as I mentioned during the 2009 H1N1 flu pandemic, of the hundreds of thousands who died, again, most of those were outside the U.S., a large number did die from secondary bacterial pneumonias. So, Based on the time sequence, it does seem fairly logical and unfortunately highly consequential that the increased amount of antibiotics emitted during flu season to treat bacterial pneumonia, and again, that's in efforts to prevent and reduce mortality, does lead to higher rates of CDI. Again, that lag time is about six to eight weeks, and this is especially tough on older patients, and so what you'll see is that CDI rates go up in some reports about 20% uh, seasonally with flu. Nancy? Thank you, Dr. Lyerly. And, Doctor, when we talk about C. diff infections, we also need to cover the rel rel <laughs> I can't talk today. relevance and importance of antibiotic stewardship. Can you discuss how this may be even more relevant in the upcoming flu season, especially with the challenge of diagnosing multiple respiratory viral infections that include the flu, COVID-19, and respiratory uh, cynical viruses? Sure. Um, antibiotic stewardship is important for so many reasons, and it's to help fight off the development of bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. This is very true with C. diff uh, without antibiotic stewardship. 
we're going to have more variants pop up, not only with C. diff, but also with other bacteria as well. But these variants will appear, and we simply will not have antibiotics to treat infections caused by some of them. Uh, we have actually already run out of some antibiotics for some types of infections. And one of the examples that I want to point out is ribotype 027. It's uh, often referred to as a hypervirulent strain of C. diff. Uh, it actually arrived in the early 2000s, and it's a good example of what we want to avoid. 027 created an especially difficult challenge for healthcare because there were multiple changes to its virulence properties. 027 actually was not a newcomer to the field. It had been around and seen in hospitals before, but the variant that came out in the early 2000s was different. It had changed. This version of 027 actually grew to higher numbers in the intestine. It produced higher amounts of toxins A and B in the gut, so you had more tissue damage and more inflammation. Um, and importantly, 027, this, this variant, was much more was, uh, resistant to fluoroquinolone antibiotics. And it's this development of resistance to fluoroquinolone antibiotics. That's the kind of thing we want to try to avoid. With this 027 variant that popped up, it occurred through a single base substitution in the gyrase gene. Was it a very complicated mutation event that caused it, caused it to arise? Um, in addition, this particular ribotype, 027 variant, actually produced an additional toxin. So all of these factors, especially the resistance to fluoroquinolones, resulted in the rapid and widespread appearance of outbreaks that were being caused in Europe, Canada, the U.S., and other sites, too. And it's obvious that secondary bacterial pneumonias are a major problem in patients who have primary viral infections. Antibiotics are going to continue to be used, but more and more experts in the field are encouraging antibiotic stewardship. Uh, in the case of COVID infections, I mentioned earlier that physicians were initially treating these patients with antibiotics empirically because they really didn't have any other uh, approach uh, for treatment. Uh, now there's more evidence suggesting that COVID patients should not be treated with antibiotics unless there's clinical evidence of a secondary bacterial pneumonia. And this can be extremely difficult uh, to diagnose. But the point here is that antibiotic stewardship that involves the judicious use of antibiotics should continue to be a top priority uh, during this pandemic. We do know that empiric treatment with antibiotics in patients with viral respiratory infections, it's not going to kill the virus. It may help ward off your secondary bacterial infections, but we do know that it's going to set the patient up for CDI. Uh, I read an article a couple of weeks ago on a study out of the University of Texas, Southwestern Medical School, and they made the point that bacterial co-infection in patients with uh, COVID-19 infections uh, was infrequent. And they were trying to make the point that antibiotics are likely unnecessary in many patients who have mild symptoms of COVID. They also went uh, further to say that there's little role for broad-spectrum antibiotics to empirically treat uh, organisms in COVID, uh, even regardless of disease uh, severity. So again, scientists are cautioning about the overuse of antibiotics in COVID patients. There is a COVID-19 scientific advisory group rapid response report that has come out recently. It outlines a key point concerning antimicrobial utilization in COVID patients who, uh, who are suspected of having a co-infection or a super-infection. Basically, uh, this advisory group says that infections with bacterial or fungal co-pathogens uh, with COVID infections are not well described. Uh, they put the number of 8% of COVID patients uh, having possible secondary infection, but these co-infections tended to occur in later stages of the disease, not the early stage. And they, uh, the report also noted that there's significant and widespread use of COVID patients despite the lack of reports of co-infections. So, uh, I want to also mention that no particular pathogens have been associated with co-infections in COVID patients. So this has been supported by this group coming out and also by a large study that came out of Canada. Uh, perhaps the increased awareness about reinforcing cleaning procedures in healthcare facilities 
and awareness of asymptomatic carriers will be a big help to us during this flu season. This could spill over from respiratory infections to infections caused by C. diff. For example, uh, there was a recent study out of Spain where they show that healthcare CDI had decreased, the number of cases of CDI had decreased, even though the use of antibiotics had not decreased. And this group in Spain attributed this decrease to greater awareness of cleaning and hygiene protocols. Uh, the factors that are in place in healthcare facilities to reduce flu and COVID, that involves your PPE, your mask, your gloves, patient isolation. All of these may very well help to reduce CDI rates as well. Nancy? Thank you, Dr. Lyerly. And yes, uh, our infection preventionists are working double time also, uh, like you said, about um, bringing awareness and working with uh, the cleaning and disinfecting. And, you know, the stewardship is so important. Uh, we were discussing earlier about pharmaceutical and, you know, in the um, the hospital stewardships, there, there's uh, so many different variations and there are so, you know, uh, topics for the stewardship, but so important to keep the uh, CDI rates down, to keep the use of antibiotics uh, in check. And we are going to take a moment and pause for another commercial break. And when we return, we will continue discussing C. difficile infection and secondary bacterial pneumonia with our guest, Dr. David Lyerly. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. To help support the C. diff foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate or call toll-free 1-844-4-C-DIFF. That's 1-844-367-2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Join us on Saturday, November 14th at 8 a.m. Eastern Time for the 8th Annual International C. diff Virtual Conference and Health Expo. For details and to register, please visit cdiff2020.com. Again, that's cdiff2020.com. Or contact the C. diff Foundation at 727-205-3922. We look forward to meeting you online on November 14th and meeting you in person in November 2021 in Boston, Massachusetts at the Hilton Boston Logan Airport Hotel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff, spores, and more. We welcome you back to the program, and we are here with our guest, special guest, Dr. David Lyerly, and discussing C. difficile infections and secondary bacterial pneumonia. And at this time, we welcome Dr. Lyerly back to the program. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Lyerly. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks again to the C. diff Foundation for inviting me. Oh, you're more than welcome. We enjoy having you here with us, and we learn so much from you. And we always look you know, forward to you returning to the show and bringing more updates to us. And thanks for sharing the COVID information, the flu information, There's just a lot of different levels here today, and we really appreciate it. And Dr. Lyerly, um, you want to maybe take this time before we close the show today to review some key points? There are a couple of things that I want to 
point out uh, about the challenge of accurately diagnosing CDI during COVID and flu season. I've already mentioned the seasonal correlation with flu and CDI during flu season. Many patients develop secondary bacterial infections. Antibiotic usage uh, goes up. Even without secondary bacterial infections, patients often are being treated empirically with antibiotics. And then about six to weeks later, that's when you see those rates of CDI going up. This uh, makes sense because antibiotics are the primary predisposing factor for CDI. So now let's talk just for a minute about SARS-CoV-2 virus. But we need to remember that although the ACE2 receptor for the virus is concentrated in the lungs, it also is found in significant amounts in other organs. And, for example, this receptor is present in heart tissue. That helps to explain why some COVID patients develop heart issues. Uh, the receptor also is present in the intestinal tract, and gastrointestinal symptoms can be seen in COVID-19 patients, especially in younger patients. One study showed that SARS receptor is present in higher amounts in the intestine, and we need to determine whether that's one of the explanations for the onset of diarrhea in some COVID patients. Uh, One thing I do want to mention is that there is some evidence, fairly small though, that COVID patients do have an altered intestinal flora. This is a whole area of work that needs to be looked into. Uh, these are some results out, of, uh, results out of Hong Kong, and the authors noted these changes in patients with severe disease. So we need to understand whether these changes in the gut flora are happening because of the infection or are they existing prior to, which sets the patient up for an infection. We need to more fully understand the cause of the diarrhea in these patients. So. Many of them are being treated with antibiotics. They're getting set up for a CDI. I do suspect that some of the diarrheas associated with COVID are due to CDI, but we certainly need more research to look at this and see if that's a reality. Also, with the flu, we know that there's a time lapse before the onset of CDI. I haven't seen that kind of time lapse in any reports with COVID patients who have diarrhea, so that would kind of imply that the diarrhea actually is being caused by the virus itself. Having said all that, I want to mention that there have been reports of COVID patients who are co-infected with C. diff. One of these studies was done in Detroit by Dr. Tina Chopra, and she published an article, uh, Clostridium difficile, I'm sorry, Clostridioides difficile in co-infections in COVID-19 patients. And I listened to her webinar about a month ago She reported in one part of her study there were 52 critically ill patients, 49 of whom received antibiotics, and she and her team identified nine COVID patients who developed what they identified as CDI. So these were COVID patients who had developed C. diff disease. Uh, They were able to show that these patients were co-infected with C. diff, and they did attribute diarrhea to C. diff. Currently, now, that's one of the, and that's the only report that I'm familiar with at this time. But there's not a lot of data demonstrated this type of co-infection. The diarrhea in many COVID patients probably is caused by the virus binding to gut receptors and damaging the gut lining, causing the diarrhea. But we do need to be aware of the possibility of co-infections. And scientists around the country have raised concerns about the overuse of antibiotics uh, in Spain. Uh, they, keep, they have reiterated multiple times about the concerns of overusing antibiotics in the pandemic leading to CDI, so we need to keep an eye on that. COVID is a very complicated disease. It's primarily a, a respiratory infection. We don't understand yet how it affects other organs, hearts, the heart and the intestines, for example. We know the receptors present in high concentrations in the lungs and other parts of the body, and it's going to be a while before we understand the mechanisms of diarrhea, but I will not be surprised if there are multiple mechanisms explaining the diarrhea. Could be by the direct action of the virus, could be because of a co-infection, it could be because of the involvement of antibiotics that set up the diarrhea caused by C. diff. Again, remember that these spores that C. diff produces are going to be all over these healthcare facilities where COVID patients are being treated. So it's all areas that we need to pursue. We need to learn more about the epidemiology, understand more about the disease, of course, 
but there is a direct tie-in with C. diff disease, CDI, antibiotic use, and respiratory infections that involve the use of antibiotics for impaired treatment or for treatment of true secondary bacterial infection. So, mm-hmm. Nancy, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you, Dr. Lyerly. And we're just about to close the program. And I'd like to know, would you mind giving out your contact information, the web address to our global listeners at this time? Certainly. Yeah, my, uh, uh, you can go to techlab, dot com, and you'll get information there on how to contact me through the website. Uh, my email address is d-l-y-e-r-l-y at techlab, T-E-C-H-L-A-B, dot com. Wonderful. And Dr. Larley, we can't thank you enough for being here today and discussing the C. difficile infections and secondary bacterial pneumonia. And we look forward to having you back again on the show really soon. So thanks for being here. Thanks again, Nancy, for allowing me to participate. Uh, Everyone, please stay safe and healthy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And at this time, the members of the CDF Foundation would like to thank everyone working diligently, uh, organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and developing new products to address C. difficile infection prevention treatments, protecting the gut microbiome, clinical trials, diagnostics, and environmental safety worldwide. And we also ask you to look into clinical trials uh, that are addressing C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff infections um, on our website, cdifffoundation.org. To learn more about upcoming events you won't want to miss, please visit our website. And at this time, we send out our get well wishes to all patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corella, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a great day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Corella, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. 